Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Sid Coop, and I am a kind of a remote staff person of Ellerslie Row Baptist Church. If you're new here, I work with our youth ministry, and then once a month I get the opportunity to come and preach as well. And generally speaking, I think Dave purposefully just says, Sid, I'm going to give you the stuff that's going to keep you up at night in your preparation. And um, that's going to be great because he likes to sleep, and that's going to be awesome. I think that's kind of how this goes. I'm not sure. Um, hey, you, you know, we live in Kelowna and, and, and uh, Colton prayed for fires in BC. It's, it's been quite a last couple of weeks for us. Uh, you know, we, we had uh, new restrictions and regulations happen in Kelowna in particular. Uh, it's a hot spot in BC. And so my wife runs Green Bay Bible Camp. So you can imagine what that was like to try to figure out how do you run camp as restrictions and regulations are shifting and changing. Um, this is the new reality of leadership in a complex environment. And we trust that God will continue to lead us in this space, but that's just true. And then I was uh, driving home from Vancouver with my son. He'd been playing basketball in Vancouver last weekend. And we were just about into Kelowna and I'd looked up a valley and there was uh, one tree that was uh, absolutely on fire. And I remember just thinking to myself, that doesn't seem good. And, uh, and within 10 minutes, I was in the town and, uh, and uh, that fire had grown significantly. And um, all of a sudden, they were evacuating parts of the community. Other parts were on uh, evacuation alert. We were close at the camp, not quite, but enough for us to put together evac plans, make sure we had buses lined up, make sure we had uh, muster points and, and, and places where we could congregate all put together. And it was fascinating. God was very gracious. There was a few, um, a few uh, buildings that were damaged in the fire, not a lot. And, um, and, and, uh, and people's lives were saved. And so we're so thankful for the work that, um, that our firefighters do. Man, I love, I love the work that they do. And, and we're thankful for God's provision. And, and, you know, I was speaking last week um, at Camp for Jen. And one of the things we just talked about was in, in this time, it's always been this way, but in this time where it seems like things are more complex, where, where the issues that we're talking about and seeing that are coming on all of our news feeds seem to be more overwhelming. And, and, and our environments right here at home are just changing and, and, and reshaping, and, and, and it's hard. It's hard uh, at times to know how to live a flourishing life in this space. The one thing I'm convinced of more and more is that in order to be able to do that, man, we have to fight to see what is actually real. You know what I mean? Like we have to do battle to see what is actually real. And by that, what I mean is, is, is we have to fight to know the truth that we have a God who is sovereignly at work over all things. That we have a God who is powerful who has clearly said in his word that he will work all things out for his good. Even the environments and situations that are meant for our destruction, he, by his grace, has the ability to redeem, renew, recreate. He's at work for our good. He's powerful. He doesn't look at the situation in our culture or our world and go, oh, I didn't see this coming. <laughs> Man, just not sure how we're going to roll through this one. That's not our God. He is over all. And I know that's, that's hard. There's so much mystery with that. I get that. I understand that. But he's powerful over all. And not only is he powerful, he's wise. He's placed us for a time such as this in the spaces we are to do his redemptive work, you know? And I think if you're like me, there's so often where you look around and you go, I am not equipped for this work, right? Like I don't have what it takes. I'm weak. And he goes, perfect. Probably in the right spot, man. 
So that when I do something really significant through you, your option isn't to go, wow, look at me, look how great I am. Can you believe that? I'm going to be honest with us right now. The world doesn't need more of us. It needs more of Jesus. And when we understand in our weakness, he uses us. We're so thankful to be used by him. We embrace the moment and we lean in, but ultimately we go, that actually wasn't about me. That was about God. Look at him, how good he is. Right? We just become conduits of his grace. And not only is he wise, but he's so good. He is so good. I've been really wrestling with this idea of his goodness. And the more that I begin to understand it and read and try to go a little bit deeper, here's, here, here's, here's the conclusion. In every single moment and situation we're in, even in the most broken, in some way he is trying to express his goodness to us. Can you imagine that? In some way, he is trying to work his goodness out for us in the midst of even the darkest, most broken spaces where it feels so impossible for us to see or even understand. But he is good. He's working. And when we begin to have that lens of reality, oh, that just changes us in our space, doesn't it? You know what? The, the, the framing that I'm using for it is when we understand that reality, we can become a non-anxious presence in the midst of a very complex environment. And we need people who bring that non-anxious presence into this space because they know what's real. And that's who he's calling us to. That's who he's calling us to. So this morning, um, I get to deal with uh, the very simple question <laughs> around sex and sexuality and God and his design for us. And I just want to say right up front, there is absolutely no way in the next 35 minutes that we have even close to enough time to kind of like just kind of lock this conversation down. And I'm not even going to try it. And I think this space can be really difficult for us for a number of reasons, to be honest with you. It's difficult because um, it's emotional. Like there's a lot, we've invested a lot of emotion in relationships with people and in this conversation. And so, and we're personally invested in this experience, in this conversation. Some of us, this is, these are the things right now that we are personally dealing with in this space around our own sex and sexuality. Uh, we have friends and family who are wrestling with these issues right now within our homes. I have family, extended family. For years, we've been having these conversations and journeying and working. We have close friends that are wrestling. I remember in our youth ministry in Lethbridge, when Sam first came to our youth ministry, and quickly, you know, we discovered that Sam was working through a lot of issues. She was in my wife's small group for four years, one of the things that she was wrestling through was, was around her gender identity. She began a process of transitioning when she was, you know, in our high school hormonally at first, of course. I remember when my wife sat with her. She'd, you know, been with us for a couple of years and a couple of things had happened. I remember number one, when she was at her school and she'd gone to see her counselor because she had a plan to end her life. And when they asked her where there was a safe environment for her to be, it was with us, and so we got the phone call, and she came to our home, embraced our youth ministry. We loved her. I remember when she was bullied, and she came back into our ministry again, and that was a place where she felt safe, and, and it was a real tension, too, because I remember as she was transitioning, and my wife was with her and says, Sam, like, do you need me to affirm the actions you're engaging in right now to feel loved by me? And Sam said, no, I know that you don't affirm, you know, the steps I'm taking, but I know you love me and I'm okay. it's okay. 
So I remember that journey that, that with Sam. I remember when Sam uh, first showed up in our home where she had you know, physically transitioned from female to male. And I remember engaging and conversing and being a part of community with Sam. And then I remember when we moved away from Lethbridge and about a year later, we found out that due to a lot of different complications that uh, Sam's life had ended. And, and I remember just wrestling with, man, if I could do it all over again, would I do something different to love Sam better, to make her time with us a more redemptive experience. And I remember, you know, the, so the, the, these are just the realities and our families are dealing with these and it's true and it's real. And then, of course, there's the political pressure we have where it's really hard to even enter conversation because every word seems to be misinterpreted and misunderstood. And it's really hard to even go, could we have an honest conversation to try to understand, to try to journey together? And it's so hard. It's just so hard. So I just, I just acknowledge that, that this is really difficult space that we're entering into. But as a church family here at Ellerslie Road Baptist Church, we, within our church family, we don't want to avoid the difficult conversations and the hard experiences. And we want to journey together. And this, this morning is part of that for us here with our church family. And if you're, if you're new here or you're exploring, I, just, I want to say welcome here. And whether your beliefs align or not, I'm so thankful you're in this space. And I hope that this can be a space where you can ask questions and wrestle with faith and what it means to be a follower of Christ and how we are as community. I just want to say you're welcome here. It's good to have you here. Thank you. But the question that I want to answer here within our community, you know, well, the first, the starting question, <laughs> the question I was given was, Sid, could you please answer the question, does God hate people who are gay? And I, you know, to be honest with you, that's a really easy question to answer. Let me be clear. The answer is no. God does not hate people who are gay. I just want to be, I want to be really clear on that. The scripture is so, you know, Jesus, Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And here's what's so fascinating about that verse, right? That God sends his son and his son, Jesus Christ, chooses willfully to come to earth to die for human creation that was actually opposed to him, in essence. Like, we're all sinners. We are all broken. We are all, our natural disposition isn't to be for God. Every single one of us are in that space. That's our natural disposition. And yet he comes to us while we're in that space and out of love chooses to die for us, to take our sin on himself. And then when he rises again, he places his rightness on us to bring us, to restore us, renew us, recreate us, make us into the humans that we're supposed to be. So he, he comes to us while we are actively opposed to him. This is, this is his love. And then what he does is he says to like his followers, he says, oh, and this is how you're supposed to roll as well, Right? So when he's asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment? He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then when the young lawyer asks him to define who is my neighbor, Jesus tells him this story that's just like so culturally offensive for them because essentially what he does is he tells him the story of the good Samaritan and how this like, this individual who represented a culture that the Jewish culture was so opposed to, saw them as their absolute you know, enemy in so many ways, he says that's the person who's actually loving. So the neighbor is anyone that's in front of you that has a need you can meet, even if they're seen as your enemy, you go and love them. You sacrifice for them. You care for them. 
He goes, this is how we're supposed to be. This is us. So when I come to a question like, you know, does God hate people who are gay? No. And neither should we. Like, we, we are called to be, you know, conduits of his grace to all people. So, so that one for me, that one's clear. But, but then the question is, you know, the question that I really want to answer this morning is, if that's true, then why do people in the LGBTQ plus community think that Christians hate people who are gay? Why, do, why is there, and not just within the community, but why does there seem to be this cultural sense that especially as those who would be placed in a box of like evangelical Christianity, why, why is it that the culture, the communities seem to think that we are a people who hate those who are gay? Um, one of the ways that I want to frame this question, and I'm going to be really upfront here, right off the front, right off the bat. Uh, at Ellerslie Road Baptist Church, we take what I would call a historically orthodox, theologically orthodox position on sex and sexuality, okay? So I just want to be really clear up front. And my goal this morning is not to defend that theological position. So we believe that when God created human beings, he created them as male and female. In Genesis chapter one, says that so clearly, made in his image, we've been created as male and female. And we also believe that the act of sex was to be created, to be experienced within the context of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. So he says, a man and a woman shall leave their father and wife, and two shall become one. And, and so, uh, you know, as a church, we believe in those two realities about gender, sex, and sexuality. Now, the question that I think we have to answer, and, and by the way, we should have lots of conversations around why we believe that, how we understand scripture, how we apply our lives to scripture. We, that's really great for us to have lots of conversations about that. That's really great. But the question I think that I want to answer is, is it possible for a, for a community to take that theological position and still help all people to function in a way that will allow all people to have the opportunity to experience redemption in that community, to experience this idea that they're loved, to experience flourishing within that space? Could it actually be possible for that to happen? And in a sense, you know, that's the question that I want to try to answer. And again, when I'm finished, there's going to be lots of questions that we're going to have. It's not going to be all wrapped up nice, but this could be a start for that conversation. So in light of that, then, you know, why do people in the LGBTQ plus community and within culture at large often think that Christians hate people who are gay? And what can we do to kind of change the perception? Is, are there things that we could do that can help change that perception and actually be a space that's redemptive for all people? Here's number one. You can hit that slide. Here's number one. I think the number one reason why you know, people uh, ask the question, you know, do Christians, you know, hate gay people is number one, because like some people who are a part of the body of Christ, some people who are Christians, we, act, we do. Like we just do. And historically we have. And, and, and we need to actually own that. We have to actually ask ourselves the questions, things like, why is it that I can like actively love other people groups who have different beliefs or ways of being than this people group does, why can I actively love and embrace them, but for some unknown reason, the LGBTQ plus community, I, I can't. And that kind of like, that, that discriminatory type practice is so hard for our culture to understand about us because there's been this sense that somehow, you know, we've seen this community in a very different light than we do other communities. You know, it's fascinating to me that um, when I talk with young adults, I think one of the reasons why 
so many young adults have such a difficult time with what I would call this, this historically orthodox you know, biblical position on sex and sexuality, I think they have a hard time is because they've only ever heard it expressed or they perceive it to be expressed in angry, defensive, and antagonistic ways. It's rare that we express our position as an invitation to something redemptive. And then the other problem is, is that when it comes to this conversation, oftentimes within the Christian community at large, we don't seek to understand before seeking to be understood. We don't sit and listen well to the other people around us or within us. We don't create environments where it even feels safe to actually express the journey that we might be on when we come to this space. You know, one of the things I'm learning is that authentic, active listening might be one of the most tangible expressions of love that someone can actually experience, you know? We have to learn, we have to learn to listen. You know, I'm just, one of the things that I'm confronted on so much is this reality that when I start speaking to these issues of gender, sex, and sexuality, oftentimes what my friends are hearing is this. They're saying, you're defining a lifestyle that leaves me isolated, alone, and without intimacy, that's what you're calling, that's what they hear me saying. And I'm not aware of that or understanding that because if I was, it might change how I engage the conversation, how I listen, how I hear, how I empathize, how I sympathize as we enter into the journey. You know, in Galatians chapter six, Paul is talking about how we should like roll with one another in community, our you know, Christian community, how we should be with one another as we struggle with living the way God would have us to, Right? So he's talking in-house, speaking to us. Listen to what he says. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When I hear this, I start thinking to myself, man, if that's who we could be, I wonder how that would change people's perspective of us. When we're with each other and we're struggling and we're wrestling, what if it was this? He says, anyone caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual. That word spiritual, by the way, is sometimes heard as holier than thou. That's not what it means, right? In Galatians chapter 6, he's reflecting back on Galatians 5, where the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. What he's saying is he's saying, hey, if you're going to go talk to someone, about issues that they're wrestling with in their lives, issues of sin, before you go to them, you better ask the Spirit to come to you and check your character. Because what I think he's saying, that if your character isn't about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, until it leans that way, you probably shouldn't go talking to other people. Like these are the kinds of people we're supposed to be as we enter into these really difficult conversations. That changes it. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. To restore means to be for someone, not against them. That we're inviting people into a, into a flourishing way. That, that we help people understand that God's design isn't just right, it's good. And we're actually looking to restore, renew, redeem. And he says, do it in a spirit of gentleness so that people can actually have an opportunity to experience you as being for them, not against them. You know, like, like be, again, before we go to others, we've got to go to ourselves. And he says, do it in a spirit of gentleness. Then he says, keep watching yourself lest you too be tempted because that's our reality. So there better be humility. There's no one better than anyone else in this space. Doesn't exist. We're all broken. 
we're all sinful. We're all going to need someone else to come alongside and help lead us in the way that we should go. Every single one of us. So there needs to be humility in the journey. And then finally, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We've got to stay with it. It's not easy to journey together. It's not easy to roll with each other. But he says we need to bear one another's burdens. We need to carry it. We need to persevere. We need to be relationally present. And we need to stay relationally present. We don't just easily eject. And so he's just, he's calling us to be this very different type of people. One of the reasons why people within culture and the LGBTQ plus community, one of the reasons why they're asking the question, do you hate gay people, is because some of us act like we do And we need to ask the Lord to convict us and confront us and change us. And we need to be really open to that. And the second reason why, and this is an interesting one, so stay with me on this, is because I think that we've made an idol out of sex and marriage within our community sometimes. Okay, so now we're like, how does that happen? Okay, just, just track with me here for a second. I think that sometimes, and by the way, I want to be really clear up front, I'm a huge fan of both sex and marriage. So I'll just, I'm just going to say that right here. Uh, Very, very big fan. But but I also want to say that life is not defined by sex and marriage. But sometimes we speak of it in the church in such a way that if you're not married and you're not having great sex, then you can't have life. And that's a lie. That's a lie. And there's a couple of reasons why that is. You know, uh, number one, shockingly, Jesus was single and seemed to live a pretty flourishing life. So that should be a little bit of a confrontation to us. But here's the other issue. A couple things. Uh, Let me roll this. Uh, Number one, I've been wrestling a lot with why did God give us sex and marriage? And there's lots of different reasons for it. But one of the reasons he gave us sex and marriage was so that marriage could be this wonderful metaphor of Christ's relationship with the church. It's something he wanted to do through human beings to express to others what it is to have a radically committed, pure, faithful relationship with others. And so it's this incredible, it's like this this image, this, this way of telling the world, this is who I am, this is how I want to love you through the context of a right, committed marriage relationship. Now, here's what's fascinating to me is that if I look in the scriptures, what I understand is that while we had sex and marriage before the fall, the scriptures seem to indicate we don't have it in eternity. And so then I'm like, whoa, that's, first of all, two things happen. Like, it just is, you're kind of like, is that really true? And then how fun could eternity actually be? Like, that's how people think on that kind of stuff. But here's the deal. I go, okay, why is that? Why is that? Here's why. Because if Sex and marriage, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily as a metaphor for Christ's relationship with the church. When eternity comes, we don't need the metaphor anymore because we've got Christ. Perfectly, we have Christ. We don't need the metaphor. We're with him in deep intimacy and we're able to relate to others wonderfully and we don't need the metaphor anymore. Okay, so then what's holy about singleness? What's so incredibly holy about singleness? When we really understand it, and this is our family. This is, we, you know, we're in this journey. My sister's in this room. We talk about, the, about this lots. Um, the, the holiness of singleness is that as a single person, we are no longer trying to express a metaphor. We're actually trying to express a reality. That Jesus is my greatest treasure. That, yeah, he's my Lord, he's my Savior, but he's my greatest treasure. And even though there's tears at what's lost because it's real, 
There's tears within that and there is loss and there's brokenness within it. Jesus is so, so he's so everything to me that I'm going to be okay. I'm okay. And he's called me to mission and my mission is as important and significant as, as any other, anyone else's mission. And so I'm here for purpose. I'm here on purpose and I'm a part of something bigger. There's a bigger narrative going on that I'm a part of and I'm okay because Jesus is going to carry me. He's going to carry me. And even though I feel like I've lost much, I'm still okay because I don't lose Jesus and there's nothing more important to me than my Savior. And that's the first thing. Now the second reality is, is we've made this, this idol out of marriage where essentially we've told people that if you can't get married, you'll never experience intimacy. That's, un, that's that We don't want to tell that on purpose, but we talk about it so much that that's kind of what it, people are experiencing in the, in the audience often. And if you're someone in the audience who you look at kind of our theological position on gender, sex, and marriage, and you go, man, if that's what it takes to be married and I don't think I can roll there, then you're telling me that I am less than, that I can't experience intimacy and and I'm kind of marginalized on the outside. But, the, but here's the problem with that. If you take a look in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about family, he speaks more about the body of Christ as family than he does the nuclear family. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, when they come to him and say, Jesus, your mom and your, your brothers are outside waiting for you. He goes, oh, my, my family, my mother, my brothers, they're the people who do the will of God. That's my family. And in Mark chapter 10, he says, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. How could you have like hundreds of brothers and sisters and mothers? How could you have that on this side? Only if your brothers and sisters and mothers aren't just your nuclear family, it's your body of Christ. Then you could. But man, that's hard for us, right? Because it's like so inconvenient, you know? Like I struggle with small groups. Why? Because I want to be in a small group with someone who enjoys the same things that I enjoy. I want to be in a small group with someone who has the same sense of humor as I have. I want to be some, in a small group with someone who's self-sufficient so they don't like kind of infringe on my like own personal time. Basically, I want to be in a small group with me because I'm a narcissist, okay? Like that's kind of... But what the scriptures tell us is that we're to be the body of Christ. We're to be family where we are radically sacrificing for each other, inviting in, engaging in intimacy together. Not sex, intimacy. As sexual beings, yes, but intimacy. Brothers and sisters, first. this is who we're, who we're called to be. And if we can have that kind of vision and that kind of experience, then all of a sudden it just kind of puts us in this equal space together where we experience God at work and redeeming and renewing ways, but it's hard. It's so hard. So why do, you know, number one is because some of us, some, some people do. We all struggle with that. I get that. Number two, because we've made an idol out of sex and marriage. We need to, be, we need to think bigger than that. Number three, I think because we have a very different view on identity than our culture. This is a hard one. You know, we live in a, in a culture where we've seen a real shift kind of over the last few decades in terms of how we understand our sense of self, our identity. I think there was a historical way of understanding identity was primarily given by family or community, something from the outside, objectively other. 
Of course, that could lead to different types of abuses and shaming. I understand that. And now in our culture, now we've really shifted where we say that our identity primarily comes from within us, how we feel about ourselves, you know, that, that, that we get to create our own identity in terms of who we are from within. And, and we've contributed to that as a culture by saying, hey, you can be whoever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. Do whatever makes you feel good. Like, you know, your, 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 your expressive individualism is the essence of who you are. Now, I think the problem with that is that's left us really emotionally fragile. I think when our identity primarily comes from within us, we're really open to being manipulated and abused. We become really insecure. That's why we have to deconstruct any opposing view to ourselves because we can't handle an opposing view because it's not just a view, it's an attack on our personhood. We have a hard time truly being inclusive. We lack resilience. We have like crisis when it comes to mental health and it's complex but, but I think there's a part of it but what, what Jesus comes and says as followers of Christ we have actually a very different way of understanding identity we, understanding, we understand identity not coming primarily from within but coming from without and not primarily from family or community these are it's all part there's a complex but primarily from our creator we believe that we have a God who knows us better than we know ourselves who actually knit us together in our mother's womb, psyche, personality, physically. Like he, he, he knows us better than we know ourselves. And not only did he create us, he recreated us through his work on the cross. That's the gospel. And our identity has now been given by him and what he says about us and what he calls us to. And our journey is not to create an identity. Our journey is to discover an identity. And this puts us in a position where we really have a chance to be resilient and strong. So how I feel about myself doesn't ultimately control me. My emotional reality doesn't have authority over me. I don't even, what, what you think about me, what I think about myself ultimately doesn't even count compared to what my God thinks about me. So if you disagree with me, it might hurt, but ultimately I'm okay because it doesn't change who I am. And when I have a really difficult and broken experience, we understand it and I got to wrestle with it, but ultimately it doesn't get to define me. Christ does. And in fact, what the gospel tells us is when we understand the good and loving father is our primary identity giver, that allows us to be resilient. It allows us to be strong. It allows us to be inclusive and open and engage in conversation and discussion because I don't have to be insecure about opposing views anymore because ultimately it's only God's view that matters to me. So I'm okay. This is the gospel identity that we've all been made by God in his image. We've all been marred by sin, every one of us, but Christ's work on the cross restores our image in his sight and it's his sight that matters. And that's part of our battle. We've got to wrestle to see that it's God's sight that matters. His sight that matters. Our experiences do not define who we are, but we can respond to our experiences by knowing who we are. And Christ can redeem all of our experiences for his glory. He gives us purpose in the midst of all of our experiences. Because sometimes those won't change. That's why he's still gracious. He's still with us. He's still working. So there's something so much more going on here. And, and this is really, this is key because it's going to lead me to the last point. Where the other reason I think that it's hard for, for culture to understand is because um, we have a very different view on self-denial than our culture does. And these two points, they, they tie together 
really well. So let me see if I can tie the dots here because I think they're important for us. When Jesus Christ called people to follow him, the phrase he used more than any other phrase was this idea, if, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's kind of the phrase that he used more than anything else. That if you would follow me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and, and follow after me. Now, here's what's interesting. If we think that our identity comes from within how we feel about ourselves, do you know what I mean? That we get to create who we are? When we hear you need to deny yourself, that sounds really destructive, really dangerous, really evil. But if we understand that our identity comes from without, that God is the one who gives us our identity, and that sin has left us broken and marred in all sorts of ways, when, when we look in the Word and we experience God saying to us, hey, you need to deny yourself, we go, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. I trust that you're good. If you're asking me to deny myself or take up my cross in some area of my life, I'm going to trust that, that if there's something I'm supposed to deny, it wasn't supposed to be my primary definer in the first place. And that you have a better way for me to be. So I'm going to trust you. I'm already surrendered to you. Hey, when I chose to become a Christian, I was dead already. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. So I trust myself to you. Now, here's the problem. Oftentimes, you know, within the church, when we talk about deny yourself or take up your cross, it feels at times that it's almost only exclusively within the realm of gender, sex, and sexuality, you know? I mean, that's what we hit over and over again. And when that's the only thing we talk about when it comes to denial, then we are appropriately open to the accusation of discriminatory practice. We really are. But the reality is this is our way of being, you know? <laughs> I mean, do you know that the scripture speaks at least 10 times more about greed than it does about like sex and sexuality? But we don't talk nearly enough about what it looks like to deny ourselves in some of those areas, you know, some of these other areas. But here's what happens when we understand that this is who we are and we start talking about God's way and it's hard and we're wrestling with it and there's cost to it. We understand that, but we're trying to see a bigger picture and we're trying to unpack the complexities behind it. And we have someone come to us and say, man, this is so hard. You're asking a lot. Like there's a lot to lose here. We go, I know. I, I know. And I can't imagine what it's like for you, but I know what denial looks like for me. And I just want to say, welcome to the family. We're going to journey this thing out together. We'll wrestle with it together. We'll figure it out together because we're in this together. This is who we are. Now, it's really hard to have that vision of journeying if we don't also have a right vision of eternity, right? Romans 8 speaks about this idea that creation is groaning, longing for redemption. We are groaning, longing for redemption. And self-denial would make no sense if there wasn't a resurrection and redemption coming. Paul says we'd be the greatest fools of all if it wasn't for the rest. We have eternity coming where everything will be made right, where everything will be restored and renewed. And when we get to eternity, all the suffering we've gone through here will seem like nothing compared to what we experienced there. But we don't think about that much. We think mostly about this experience being everything, but as followers of Christ, we know this isn't everything. This is an important thing. And it's part of the journey. But there is so much more journey to come that God has for us. And if we don't have that lens, then these realities here don't make sense. They're really hard and really difficult. So this is 
the reality that God is calling us into? Why is it that so many within our culture and within the LGBTQ plus community in particular feel like Christians hate them? Number one, I think because sometimes, sometimes we act like we do. We have to own that. We need to wrestle with that. We have to be humble before the Lord and say, hey, if there's any unrighteousness in me, any way that's not of you, any, could you reveal that to me and lead me in the way of rightness, of redemption, of restoration? Show us how we should be. We've got to own that. Number two, we need to quit making an idol out of sex and marriage. We celebrate sex and marriage, yes, but we celebrate singleness and we celebrate family as the body of Christ as well. And we act like it. We lean into the inconvenient way of, of welcoming people in and loving and living and serving and sacrificing. Fight for that. We, we, we begin to understand the difficult journey of wrestling with identity. We don't make it just simple, but we lean into the complexity and we journey with each other to a place where we can say, hey, you are not defined by what's taking place inside or by what's happened to you or, or whatever it is. going. You are defined, the gospel changes who you are. That is, the, that is the locus of identity for all of us. And there's so much hope and grace in the reality of the gospel and strength and resilience in that place of identity. So we speak so much about that. And then we, we embrace the journey of self-denial, understanding that self-denial, you know, when it's, when it's the way that God calls us to, when it's for his way and his way of being, that self-denial is just a way of positioning ourselves to experience his goodness and his renewal to be the human beings he's calling us to be. And we understand that that journey is difficult for all of us. And so we journey together and we're open to God's work in our life and this reality with a vision of eternity, knowing that there's something so much more to come. And if we could be an environment where this defines our culture, I think we might have a chance. We might have a chance to be a redemptive presence for all. At least it's a starting point. I think we need to aggressively love. We need to humbly point to the truth. And I think there's three areas where we got to work this out. we got to do a lot of work on our theology. We really do. We need to wrestle with what we believe, what we believe about Scripture, what we believe about God's authority in our lives. We've got to wrestle with that. we got to wrestle also, though, with our civic responsibility. How can we be good citizens who are actually for all people? What does that look like for us to be good citizens for all people? But then finally, we need to wrestle with the pastoral reality. How do we care as the body of Christ for all people in our environments? How do we become that type of people? And it's not easy, it's hard, but God is going with us. He's going with us. And he's called us to a time such as this. And so this is the journey we have to lean into.